Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips about improving the health and well being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of a senior's healthcare. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, I'm going to address a question that was recently posted as a comment on a Better Health While Aging article. It's a question about signs of paranoia in an older person and how to assess whether this older parent is safe. And since this question brought up some issues that I know lots and lots of people wonder about or struggle with, I've decided to address it in this podcast episode, and I'm also writing a related QA article, which I'll be posting this week as well. So I'm going to start by reading you the question in its entirety, and then I want to actually cover with you the most common causes of paranoid behavior and other odd behavior in older adults. And then we'll talk about how you can get started assessing your parents' safety and situation. And then I'll share some tips on following up and getting help with this type of situation. Let me now read you the question. My mother is 80. She is very active despite breaking her hip two years ago. She still attends water therapy three times a week at the YMCA. She drives to the base, which is 20 miles away, and she pays her bills on time. She's a retired psychiatry nurse and has shown signs in the past of paranoia. Lately, she has, quote-unquote, heard voices of her grandchildren in her home and called my sister. She also has difficulty with getting the right words to say out and has her sleep pattern out of whack and will call people at odd times of the night. With her independence comes the fact that she won't share any medical information because she thinks we are out to get her committed. How can I test her or question her to find out the level of decline she may be in to make sure she is safe? So that's the question. And... My guess is that many of you listening may have encountered similar situations with one of your own older relatives, or you probably know somebody who has faced something similar to this. And these kinds of situations are among the most frustrating and worrying for adult children. I think the the questioner is absolutely right to be concerned about her mom's safety. Now, it's great that her mom sounds still quite physically active and able, you know, driving long distances attending water therapy. Also great that she's paying bills. I mean, problems with driving or finances or declines in physical ability are all red flags that we often look for. And so far, you know, it sounds like she's doing okay with those criteria. But one, the the person with the question mentions that her mom has shown signs in the past of paranoia. And I would want to know a little bit more about that, especially sort of what was the context? Was that in the context of when she had the broken hip and was hospitalized? We know that hospitalizations can bring up a condition known as delirium, which we covered in a previous episode. I believe it was episode 14, which can cause people to think less well than they usually do. Or is this a woman who maybe had paranoia and other uh, sort of symptoms of, of uh, you know, what we often call mental illness earlier in life? So I would want to know more about that. 
But now we have this uh, older woman who is maybe hearing voices at home. She's calling people. She's also um, having a little bit of trouble getting words out. Her sleep pattern's different. And then she's worried about her family being out to get her committed. So what do you do? I do have some ideas on uh, what you can do and how you can get started assessing an older parent like this at home. And I do think that's a good, um, that's an important thing to do. It's not the entire solution, but it's certainly part of navigating this challenge. But before I do that, I want to go over what are the most common causes of this type of behavior in older adults. And I want to do this because one of the things that's really important to do if you're facing this kind of situation is to help your older parents and the doctors figure out why these odd behaviors and other symptoms have come up. And I want to emphasize this because my experience has been that people actually often don't get around to digging into the why is this happening as much as they should. I think this happens because, first of all, people um, sometimes assume that these kinds of odd behaviors are either normal aging, but it's not normal, or they assume that it's a dementia such as Alzheimer's disease or another related dementia, and that it's not treatable and there's nothing to do, and so why bother to get it looked into? And it is true that Alzheimer's disease and other dementias are one reason why people can develop these kinds of odd behaviors or paranoias or fears or irrational concerns. But there are also many other causes that are not dementia that can cause these behaviors. And it's also possible for people to maybe have the the very beginning of a dementia and still be made worse by one of the other additional causes of these kinds of behaviors. So even though it's often really hard to get the older person medically evaluated, they don't want to go see the doctor, uh, the situation this person is describing where her mother is very concerned that her family is going to try to, to get her committed or maybe push her out of her home, those are really common fears. And we have to remember they have a little bit of a basis in reality, actually. I think a lot of older people are legitimately concerned that they might be pushed out of their home before they, they want to go. And then to make matters worse, the doctors are often, um, uh, a good doctor should want to evaluate this carefully, but it's, um, I've certainly heard families tell me that when they brought this up to the doctor, it was kind of waved off as, ah, what do you expect? She's getting old or, or they were just told, well, it's dementia. So I do appreciate that it's hard to get a person evaluated, but I really believe it's worth doing and persisting because many of the underlying causes can be treated or reduced. And so let's now talk about what are the uh, the known causes of these kinds of paranoid symptoms or irrational behaviors developing in an older person. So I'm going to introduce a medical term for now, just in the interest of being a little more exact. These paranoid symptoms, so believing someone's in the house, believing someone's out to get you or to get you committed. Um, other ones that we often hear about is that somebody's taking my stuff, someone's in the house at night. These symptoms fall into a category of, of symptoms that is technically called psychosis. I hesitated a little bit when planning the podcast on using it because I think it just sounds like such a terrible word, psychosis. It sounds really awful. It makes us think of the term psychotic, but it is actually a medical term. And the reason why I bring it up is because it includes sort of three things that I think are important to think about and kind of bundles them together. Uh, one is delusions, and that means believing things that aren't true or real. When an older person is convinced that someone is in the house, 
even though as best you can tell someone's not, that might be a delusion. If they believe that someone they know has been replaced by somebody else, that's called an imposter delusion. And I've actually had uh, seen older people who, who actually seem quite okay mostly and are doing fairly well, but then they'll have some odd belief that as far as we can tell is not true. And so I remember a very long time ago, an older gentleman who wasn't taking his medications. And when I would ask him about it, he said that there was somebody who would creep into his room every night and steal his medications and also trim his eyelashes with scissors. And he was extremely convinced of this, even though as best we could tell it wasn't true. And he didn't say anything else that was too odd or unusual. And otherwise, he, he seemed to be mentally doing pretty well. So that would be another example of a, a delusion. Um, so that's one type of symptom of psychosis. But then there are also hallucinations. And hallucinations come in basically two types. There's visual hallucinations, which means you see things that aren't there or that other people aren't seeing. And then there's auditory hallucinations, which means you hear things that other people can't hear. So uh, visual hallucinations in particular are quite common among older people and are known uh, to be associated with certain kinds of health problems that affect older people. And we'll talk a little bit more about those elsewhere. And then also uh, within psychosis, there's what they call, um, quote unquote, disorganized thoughts or speech, which basically means the person uh, saying or thinking things that seem illogical or bizarre to others. So it's a little bit beyond just explaining your delusion, but they might have a whole sort of more complicated story that seems kind of uh, bizarre or odd, or they might be jumping quickly from from one topic to another in a way that that other people can't quite follow the relation. So those are three sort of key common symptoms uh, that fall into psychosis, delusions, believing things that aren't true, hallucinations, seeing or hearing things that aren't true, or that aren't there, I should say, and then disorganized thoughts or speech. And so who gets psychosis and why? Psychosis does happen uh, to people earlier in life, but it's actually uh, relatively uncommon. And unless a person is intoxicated, it can be the sign of a serious mental illness. And schizophrenia, for instance, is notable for a lot of symptoms of psychosis, delusions, or hallucinations, especially auditory ones, hearing voices. So in younger people, it's, it's fairly uncommon. And unless they're intoxicated, it's a sign of some, you know, often something fairly substantial happening uh, mentally in the brain. But what it turns out is that these symptoms of psychosis become actually much more common as people get older. And that's because any of these symptoms, the delusions, the hallucinations, or even disorganized thoughts and speech, uh, any of those symptoms can emerge when people's brains aren't working properly for some reason. And as people get older, they're just more and more likely to end up in a situation, a health situation that can cause their brain to not work well. Experts have estimated that 23% of people will develop symptoms of psychosis in late life. So that's one in four older people will have some of these delusions or hallucinations or disorganized thoughts or, or all of them. So if this comes up in your family or in someone else you know, I think people you know, sometimes tell me this, like it's the, the oddest thing or they're so surprised. And actually it's, it's really quite common in, in older people. Is, is what we know for, you know, if we work a lot with older people, especially older people who are having health problems. So late life psychosis is actually fairly common. And that's why I, I actually encourage people when they do their advanced planning 
to plan for the possibility that at some point they might be having these delusions or hallucinations? And, you know, how could their family intervene? But what actually causes these symptoms in most older people? So I'm going to reference now a, a review article from 2015 on late life psychosis, which I thought did a really nice job of organizing the causes into six Ds. Now, unfortunately, it's not available in the public domain. So you won't be able to read the whole thing for free unless you find your way into a medical library and perhaps can use their computer system. But I'm still going to refer to it because I, I thought it did a nice job. And I'll put a link to it so you can at least read the, um, the freely available summary if you'd like to. We can organize the causes of late life psychosis into six Ds. The first D is for delirium, which causes an estimated 10% of psychosis symptoms. Again, this is a condition that we covered in episode 14 because it's actually so common, quite, quite common, even though most people have never heard of it. And that's that condition of worse than usual mental function that comes on over hours to days when an older person, um, or it can be any person, but when a person is put under enough physical stress due to illness or surgery, then their brain can stop working properly. And if they are a mentally healthy person, they can start acting like someone with dementia. And if there's somebody who already has dementia, then they can be worse. And it happens more to older people because their brains are more vulnerable and it just takes a little bit less to trigger them into this delirium. So we covered that in episode 14 and I also have articles on the site. So delirium in of itself is a, a cause for symptoms of psychosis. And although delirium especially comes on in the hospital, you should know that people can and do develop delirium when they're not in the hospital. Just if they're sick from, for instance, a urinary tract infection or they can get it from medication side effects. Next D, D number two, is drugs, alcohol, and other toxins. Even if you aren't frankly delirious, you can develop some delusions or hallucinations due to medication side effects. The medications that are perhaps most likely to bring this on are probably the medications known to affect memory and thinking. And I'll post a link to an article that covers four types of medications that can affect memory and brain function. Again, people who already have underlying changes to their brain, such as a history of dementia, are more likely to be tipped into um, delusions or hallucinations from medication side effects. But it's been known to happen even to people who were otherwise thought to be, um, to be fine. And then you also, along with medication side effects, want to consider the possibility of substance abuse. Either uh, people can either be intoxicated, you know, taking too much of something right now, or if they use certain drugs, including alcohol regularly, that can cause permanent changes to the brain, which might prompt delusions or hallucinations. And then we also want to consider the possibility of withdrawal. If for some reason people have been using alcohol or another substance regularly and they aren't able to get it, and sometimes this happens when people are hospitalized actually, they can start having delusions and hallucinations as a result of the withdrawal from the substance. So moving on, D number three. The third D that causes late life psychosis is disease. Now this is kind of a big catch-all category. And basically there are many physical health problems that can interfere with brain function. And so those can potentially cause delusions or hallucinations or kind of crazy thinking or crazy talk as people sometimes call it. 
These can include things like electrolyte problems, such as abnormally high or low levels of sodium, potassium, calcium, or magnesium in the blood. can also be caused by low levels of vitamin B12, which we discussed in a previous episode. Low levels of folate can cause this too. That's a little less common in the U.S. than low vitamin B12, but still a possibility. We also think about thyroid problems, infections, neurological diseases. Severe liver and kidney dysfunction can also cause problems with brain function, but people usually know that they already have that kind of damage to the liver or kidney. And then it also seems that brain damage from minor strokes can cause psychosis symptoms. They've done studies where they um, did scans of the brains of older people who were having some kind of psychosis symptoms, and they found that, that many of them did actually show little signs of damage of little mini strokes. So that's another potential cause. Uh, many of these conditions I've just mentioned are sometimes referred to as dementia mimics. They are conditions that we're supposed to assess for and rule out before we diagnose somebody with dementia. And I think of them as really sort of uh, physical causes of worse brain function more than dementia mimics. Because sometimes, for instance, to have dementia, you're supposed to be impaired enough that you can't manage your regular life. But in the older mother who's described in this question, she's actually mostly managing her regular life. She's just also having some some paranoid fears and um, some confusion at night. And so that's why I feel that you, you don't want the person to be bad enough that you're thinking dementia before you go looking for these other conditions that might be affecting their brains and brain function. Moving on to the next D, so this would be right now uh, number four of the six. This D is depression and also other mood disorders. In the review article, they estimated that this causes about 33%, about a third of the psychosis symptoms in older adults. I thought that sounded a bit high to me because most of the time when I've come across older people with delusions or hallucinations, we have not diagnosed them with really major depression. But uh, we do know that people with major depression can experience psychotic symptoms. They tend to be a little bit different. They're often related to being uh, sad or down. They might be delusions of guilt, like people will be convinced that they were guilty or responsible for something bad that happened to them or to another person, or that they deserve some kind of punishment. A small amount of older adults may also have bipolar disease. There's actually now a sort of, it's now called geriatric bipolar disease for bipolar in people who are older. It includes a certain number of people who were diagnosed earlier in life and have just gotten older, but there actually are, uh, do seem to be some people who develop bipolar disease later in life, and the psychiatrists are still studying that and learning a little bit more about it. But those people may also experience delusions or hallucinations. Next D, number five, is dementia, including Alzheimer's disease, Lewy body dementia, dementia associated with Parkinson's disease, vascular dementia, and others. The authors of the review article estimate that dementia is responsible for the psychosis symptoms in about 40% of cases. And delusions are really, really common in dementia, especially delusions of theft. Spousal infidelity is another common theme. Uh, abandonment, persecution. And then hallucinations are also common, but they do tend to be more visual and less about hearing things. And the visual hallucinations are especially common in Lewy body dementia, 
which has some relations to Parkinson's disease. And so the sort of classic in Lewy body dementia is that the person sees uh, often small children or sometimes animals in the, in the corner of rooms. Lewy body dementia is also classically associated with um, fluctuating cognition. So sometimes people are actually really sharp and other times they're kind of worse. But you can have hallucinations and delusions. They've been noted in pretty much all the dementias. And so that is a common cause of psychosis symptoms in older people. And then the last D is delusional disorder and also schizophrenia spectrum disorders. Now, they estimate that delusional disorder is responsible for psychosis in only about 2% of cases and maybe schizophrenia in 1% of cases. These are you know, psychiatric disorders. And what's important to know is that these two conditions have lots of symptoms that overlap with those of dementia or delirium or other conditions affecting thinking. In order to be diagnosed with delusional disorder or schizophrenia, doctors have to exclude other causes for the psychosis symptoms. It's what we call a diagnosis in a way of exclusion. You have to exclude all these other things. And it's overall, I mean, there are older people with schizophrenia or with pure delusional disorder, but there aren't that many of them. Schizophrenia affects an estimated maybe 0.5% of people over age 65, many of whom develop the schizophrenia before age 60. And then delusional disorder um, affects, uh, the estimate is 0.03% of older adults. So really small. I bring this up because I see sometimes on caregiving forums that an older person starts to have delusions or hallucinations and other people diagnose them with delusional disorder. And I think it's because they go online and look on Google and, and read about it. But what you need to know is that it's actually, it's quite rare for people to have pure delusional disorders. If somebody, an older person starts having delusions or paranoias or irrational fears or other worries, you really want to go and look for these other causes, the other five Ds, which are much more common. And many of them are treatable. We can help people be better when we remove medications that are making them worse. Uh, we can treat bipolar disorder. We can treat major depression Delirium should certainly be evaluated and managed and can usually be improved. And then if it's an issue of alcohol or other substance abuse, um, we want to, to know about that and, and try to help there too. And then finally, all those other diseases that quote-unquote dementia mimics, the electrolyte imbalances, the problems with vitamins and thyroids, all of those are, are treatable usually. So it's really important to not assume that it's either delusional disorder or that it's a dementia that you can't do anything about. And even though it's hard, you want to push to help that older person get uh, medically evaluated. And then you want to keep an eye on things and make sure that the doctors have checked for those common causes. It's especially easy, I think, for doctors to miss medication side effects and possibly uh, depression. Lastly, I do want to say a few words about vision and hearing impairments. They were not included among the six D causes of psychosis in the review article that I'm referencing for this podcast, but they certainly are worth taking into account if you're concerned about psychosis symptoms in an older person. There's actually a syndrome of visual hallucinations known as Charles Bonnet syndrome, in which people who are cognitively intact and who already have vision impairments start seeing things that are not there. And it used to be thought of as rare, but it seems that if you interview older adults at vision clinics, 
Quite a lot of them admit to having these visual hallucinations, but often they haven't spoken up because they don't want anybody to think that they're crazy or losing their minds. So that's another um, thing to keep in mind. And otherwise, vision and hearing impairments can certainly exacerbate or worsen an older person's hallucinations or delusions if they have anything else going on that might be prompting those hallucinations or delusions or worries or irrational fears. And that's because if you can't see things very well or hear things very well, it's a lot easier to sort of misinterpret something that you see or hear and turn it into something else, especially if you're already feeling anxious or paranoid or having difficulties. So really, psychosis symptoms in older adults are just like falls and other common problems in older adults in that there's almost always multiple factors that are triggering or worsening the problem. And it's really rare for it to be just one underlying disorder or cause. So you always want to be thinking, what are all the things that might be going into this so that you can see how many of them you can improve and hopefully improve the problem overall? Now that we've talked about what might be causing the symptoms of paranoid behavior and delusions and hallucinations, let's talk about what you can do if you're concerned about this and specifically how the person might be able to check on her mother's safety and situation. I do think it's good to keep in mind the common causes of psychosis symptoms when you do this because as you assess the older person, you're partly thinking, well, you may not think this so much, but you know, part of the idea is to see if you see signs, um, other symptoms or signs that might help the doctors figure out which of those causes of psychosis is underlying it. So how do you actually do this? Ultimately, you're going to need to work with professionals, but you can speed the process along by checking for common red flags and by bringing them to the attention of the health professionals. Since I get asked this a lot by people, I get asked, you know, is my mother safe at home? I'm worried. A little bit more than a year ago, I actually created a guide and I based the guide on my own process of checking older people, uh, either by interviewing them or by preferably going to their homes. I base it on uh, my own internal list of what I check for when I'm trying to sort of figure out what are the problem areas, what are the key safety areas, what are the sort of uh, red flags that might point us in a certain direction to figure out what the underlying cause of problems might be. Let me take you through. I've organized them into five domains. They are available, a cheat sheet, quick start guide, which you can get from the website. I'll post the link for the podcast. And so in this PDF guide, I have sort of five checklists that will take you through these five areas where I assess, but I'll review them briefly right now. As a geriatrician, when I'm concerned about psychosis symptoms or is the person safe at home, here's what I assess. First, I assess the ability to manage key life tasks. Now, we have a term for this in geriatrics and gerontology and social work. They're called commonly the activities of daily living, ADLs, and the instrumental activities of daily living. So what are these? So the activities of daily living are the key tasks, the key self-care tasks that we usually learn as toddlers. They include walking, dressing, feeding ourselves, toileting, so getting to and from the bathroom and cleaning ourselves appropriately, and then also bathing. And then there are the instrumental activities of daily living. And these are key tasks that we usually learn as teenagers. And they're more about being able to function fairly independently in the world as an adult. So they include things like managing finances, 
managing transportation, shopping for food and meal preparation and serving the meal, uh, home maintenance, um, medication management. So these two groups of tasks together, um, we think of in geriatrics as reflecting uh, people's function, their ability to function for those tasks. And we always want to find out which, if any of them, people are struggling with because it um, one gives us some clues as to what might be going on, but two, it highlights places where they might need some extra support or intervention because all of these things need to happen for people to, to live their lives and to, to thrive and to not be exposed to too many uh, safety hazards. I mean, it's not possible to keep people 100% safe, but you want to make sure people get things to eat and aren't financially exploited and can get around and, you know, can do what needs to be done in, in life. So that's one domain that I assess is how are they doing on those key life tasks? And if they're having trouble, what, what's the problem? I also ask if they're getting help with any of it. That's another way too. The next domain is I have a list of safety red flags. This doesn't include every possible safety issue that could affect an older person, but the key ones that I look for, and again, you know, I have a longer list in the guide, is uh, one, finances, because financial exploitation of older people is really, really common, especially if they're having anything affecting their memory or thinking. So one, I sort of, you know, try to, to assess whether there seems to be any concern for financial exploitation or scams, is somebody else cashing checks for the person or around a lot, and also any problems paying bills. Uh, both that might be a sign of what kind of brain difficulty the person is having. And then we also don't want people to fall too far behind on their bills and have services cut off or be assessed large fines. If there's been concern about memory or thinking, I especially, you know, ask about wandering or getting lost and then problems with the stove. Those are sort of activities that have fairly high potential for harming a person and that we want to know about. Driving is another issue that can bring up a lot of safety issues. So is the person still driving? Do passengers feel worried when they ride with them? Have there been any accidents or close calls? Then I also consider the possibility of elder abuse, any concern about emotional, verbal, or physical abuse. And uh, one could put financial abuse. Um, that's a category of elder abuse as well. And then I have later on a list of sort of physical red flags. But when I'm thinking safety, I especially sort of focus on, you know, have there been falls and have there been any repeated trips to the emergency room or hospitals? Because those are sort of the brightest red flags or some of the brightest red flags that I can think of for, for physical health issues that should be addressed sooner rather than later. So then next domain, I have a list of physical health red flags. I mean, of course, if I'm seeing somebody one-on-one, -on -one, I also try to review their medical history as carefully as possible. But there are some, some sort of simple ones that you as a family caregiver can assess, like weight loss, or have you noticed that their strength seems to be declining? Are they complaining about pain quite a lot? So, you know, there are some, some physical health red flags that I suggest in the guide that you can check for. And then also some mood and brain health red flags to help uh, family caregivers jot down if they've noticed some common signs of depression or loneliness. And, and I have a, a short list there that, that people should be able to check off if they've noticed it or not. And then lastly, I do encourage people to check on medication management red flags. And that's because medications are, are so often implicated when an older person is not doing well. They're either implicated in that they might be doing poorly because they're taking too much medication or a medication that's known to be a problem for older people, or many older people who 
who are somewhat struggling may have chronic conditions and they may um, usually taking medication as part of managing that chronic condition. And if they're doing poorly and falling behind on their medication management, that might cause those other chronic conditions to get worse. So I'm always very interested in how people are doing with their medications. And so I have a couple things on the list that families can check for and bring to the attention of the doctor or pharmacist if they notice it. So those are some of the things that I recommend families check for if they're concerned about an older person who has been changing in behavior or, you know, otherwise seems to be showing symptoms that are cause for worry. Now, going through the guide is not going to enable you to make a diagnosis. You, you absolutely have to work with professionals. The guide is more meant to help you sort of identify specific symptoms or safety issues that you can then bring to the attention of doctors or ask other people for help depending on it. And in the guide, I also have suggestions on who might be able to help you with certain types of problems. It's one thing to contact the doctor and say, well, you know, I'm worried about my mom because she's been sort of saying strange things and calls us in the middle of the night. I mean, that's that's good. That's important to do. But if you can also come in with sort of a list of more specific things of like, here's where she's doing fine. Here are problem areas that we noticed that we're concerned about. What do you think is causing it? What can we do to keep these from getting worse? That's a little bit more helpful. And that gets you a little further along on the process of evaluating what's the cause and then intervening to sort of help the person do as well as they can while the uh, evaluation is in progress or for the future, depending on what's causing the problems. Speaking of following up, let's talk a little bit about how you can actually follow up on any safety issues or memory problems once you've sort of documented areas of concern. This often is a major stuck spot for families because it's really common for older people to become defensive and resist the family's attempts to help. And often the older person has not done any advanced planning specifying how they would want their family to intervene or giving their family legal permission to intervene to get their medical records or to intervene with their finances if they start showing signs of impairment. So it can be a really difficult, tricky spot to get out of. And how you get unstuck really depends on the situation. Again, whether any uh, advanced planning or legal documents have been prepared ahead of time to enable families, whether families have talked about it before with their older parents, which often they haven't. So how you get unstuck really depends. But but here are some, some ideas that are often helpful and that usually you can implement even if your parent is resistant. One is to relay the concerns to the parent's doctor. And people often think that they need their parent's permission to do this. I don't want to encourage you to do this without your parent's permission. Often families find that they have to go ahead and do it, but you always want to bring it up and try to see if if you can get the older person to to agree or at least not explicitly forbid it. But You should know that when push comes to shove, there's no law that forbids you from writing a letter detailing your concerns and observations and sending it to the person's doctor. There are patient privacy uh, laws, notably the one HIPAA, H-I-P-A-A, but that prevents doctors and professionals from releasing private medical information to others without permission, but they can still receive it from you. I do really encourage people to let the doctor know, and if the doctor doesn't seem to be doing anything, then you can think about another doctor, although that's actually extremely hard if the older person is not in agreement. But you do want to let the doctor know, 
because that way when they see your older parent, they can start doing some tests or assessments themselves. Like for instance, they might check on physical exam and asking questions to check for many of those physical illnesses that can cause psychosis symptoms like delusions or hallucinations. And the doctor may also be able to persuade your older parent to accept some help or to let you come to the visit. And that can be really, really, really valuable. So do contact the doctor and I do encourage you to send concerns in writing um, because that way you can be more detailed and specific and also it will often get scanned into the medical record. You can also ask the doctor's office if there are any social work services available, if there might be a social worker available to talk to family caregivers. Most doctor's offices don't have a social worker, but some do, and some bigger health clinics may have social work services. So ask because uh, you never know if something might be available. Other things you can try. You can also try contacting organizations that support older adults and families for assistance and for referrals. And again, you can do this even if your parent is resisting your involvement because most of those organizations are there also to support the family caregivers of older people. Places to start is one, try your local area agency on aging, and I'll put a link to the locator in the show notes. They, they usually provide information and uh, resources, and they might have some, some ideas for you. There's also Family Caregiver Alliance Online. This is a big nationally known nonprofit for family caregivers, and they have a nice navigator where you click on your state and then it shows you services that are available. And then you can also see if there are any local nonprofits serving seniors and families, because often there are some available and they may also be able to offer some counseling or social work services that can help you figure out how to get unstuck with the situation. Another option, which can be very helpful, but unfortunately usually costs a little bit more money, is to get help from a geriatric care manager. They are now known as aging life care professionals or from another um, what I think of as a senior problems expert. And there are a number of people who are working as consultants. They have different backgrounds, but who sort of specialize in helping families get unstuck with these kinds of problems with older people. This does usually require paying out of pocket. It can definitely add up, but it provides more hands-on assistance than you may be able to get through a social worker or through a nonprofit. And Many of these geriatric care managers or other experts are usually good at uh, mediating a challenging conversation with the older parents. They might be able to help you communicate with doctors, especially if you feel that the doctor isn't being very responsive to the concerns, or they might help you find a different doctor. And they often know what local resources are available to address any safety or living issues that you detect. And they also uh, might be able to refer you to an uh, elder law attorney if that ends up seeming like it might be necessary. If you can't afford a geriatric care manager on your own, ask around because often they give free lectures at assisted living facilities, and that might be another way to get some advice on managing the situation. And then another really good place to get advice is from other adult children who have faced similar situations. People often don't go to support groups until there's an actual diagnosis, at least not in person, has been my experience. But there are caregiving forums and message boards online, and so sometimes that's an easier way to get started. And there'll be lots of people who are sharing ideas on getting through these kinds of um, stuck points. One option that I know has a very active forum is there's a caregiver forum at agingcare.com. Lots of people posting their questions and lots of people answering, offering suggestions. Now, 
the advice uh, is mostly not moderated by professionals. I think they have a community moderator. So you, sh- you definitely want to double check on any medical, legal, or financial advice you get, but it can be a good source of, of ideas and also a lot of moral support because lots of people have been through something similar. And then a newer site is daughterhood.org. We actually had their founder, Ann Tomlinson, on the podcast in episode 17. And she's created a website and community for people helping older parents and especially to sort of cope with the common challenges. And so I definitely recommend her website. And she's also working on creating local circles of people who are facing these issues. And so you can see if there's a local circle near you. So those are four things that you can that you can do to try to get help and follow up. And you don't have to have your older parents' agreement. That said, I think it's good to try to to discuss it with an older parent and not sort of uh, intervene against their wishes or behind their back unless you feel like you really have absolutely no other choice. So forging on ahead on your own should be the the last resort. So how to talk to an older parent about this is really tricky. It's hard for me to give a few like small suggestions. This is part of why I think even though it costs money, it can be really worthwhile to have a professional mediate the conversation because it's, it's just very easy for everybody to get emotional and tense when discussing this within a family and for the older person to end up feeling really, really threatened or disrespected or upset. And by the way, getting upset will make whatever thinking problems or psychosis symptoms tends to make it worse. So you want to be careful about the person getting too upset. I did write an article a few years ago with some suggestions, and I'll post a link to it. I mean, basically, you want to use I statements as much as possible instead of saying you should, you should. You want to frame any suggestions you have as a way to help your uh, the older parent achieve his or her goals. So for most older people, that includes living at uh, home for as long as possible, maintaining good brain function. I think it potentially helps to sort of remind people that there there are lots of treatable conditions that are common in older people that can can cause some some difficulties uh, with thinking or some of the problems they've noticed and you know let's go get that looked into uh, so that we can get you back to thinking and feeling your best because you know we know that's really important to you so that you can keep living this vibrant life as you get older and then lastly I would say avoid relying on logic I've observed a lot of these conversations between families and I'm often struck by how often the adult child is trying to make this logical explanation to their parent about why they should do this or why this is an issue or people just really seem to fall back on logic. And it just doesn't work very well because, first of all, it doesn't work so well even when people are younger because often what's at the heart of the disagreement or tension is you know, our emotions and fears and frustrations, and those don't really get addressed by by logic. But especially if people are experiencing any difficulties with memory or thinking, they're not going to be able to logically necessarily explain why they're doing what they're doing. I still like to ask people to explain because it's, it's useful to see sort of what their world is and how they're framing it, you know, to themselves. But don't expect it to be logical. And, and it's important to not expect that if you provide logical explanations that they're going to respond logically. It just doesn't work, uh, work that well. So those are, are my few suggestions for now on discussing it with an older parent. So again, I would say bring it up, your concerns and you know your thought that 
that I'd like to bring it up to your your doctor. I don't know that you have to say I'm going to come over to your house with a checklist and, and check all these things that might just make the person anxious. I think just discreetly observing and sort of saying, you know, how's it going? How's this going on? Is probably less threatening. But um, yes, before especially bringing it up to the doctor, I, I think it's good to see how the parent feels about it and see if you can get their buy-in or okay to do it. But, you know, if they refuse your help and you've actually gone and looked and seen signs of things that are concerning, uh, be very careful about just sitting there and saying, well, they said, no, I can't do anything because usually there is an underlying health problem going on. And even though it's hard, you want to still find a way to get some evaluation or at least keep watching for signs of things getting worse because they can get worse and that can cause, you know, financial consequences for people or sometimes serious health problems too. So in closing, I'll say that it's certainly a really difficult uh, situation to be in. Um, and even though it's quite common, that doesn't seem to make it any easier. People usually have to slog away at it. We didn't even talk about sort of negotiating it with the siblings, how, how to approach it, but that tends to be a whole other complication that people sometimes have to experience. But I hope that what you might take away from this episode is that you don't just want to be looking into how much have they declined and are they safe. You really want to think about what might be causing it and can we get it evaluated and are there things that we can treat because once you know what's causing it, some of it might be treatable and that will also help you know what to anticipate for the future and plan for and that's an important part of the process too. My guess is that since this is a complicated situation, many of you may have questions about something I said in the episode or the situation or about a related situation. So what I'd like to do is actually invite you to send me questions uh, related to this, the best way is to post them as a comment on the show notes page. And if I get enough questions, I might do a follow-up episode addressing them either by myself or by recruiting another expert, depending on what your questions are. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. So again, if you have follow-up questions regarding what I talked about in this episode, please post them on the show notes page. And if I get enough questions, I'll do a follow-up episode addressing them. And then as always, on the show notes page, I'll be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in this episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, thank you so much, and please consider leaving a rating and a review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.